And I call it social courage to speak up, speak out, and speak against quicker, faster, sooner against racism, sexism, xenophobia, homophobia. This episode is sponsored by Headquarters, which also happens to be where Laurel Media offices and produces this podcast. In our humble opinion, Headquarters is the best co-working office space in Houston. It's creative, affordable, and just plain fun to work here. Headquarters, located just east of downtown Houston. Welcome to this episode of Our Voices Matter, and the voice that matters today is that of Matthew Knowles. And of course, our audience knows who you are. Not that's only- good. You don't have to give a well. You know, I mean, I think I think most people will know who you are not only because of what you d- have done uh, as head of Music World Entertainment and all the Music World music franchises that came from that, but of course your enormously talented daughters, Beyonce and Solange, uh, that have set the music world on fire. And Beyonce (laughs) in particular right now is really the talk of the town. And we've known each other for, I forget how many years now, but back all the way back to Destiny's Child. Yeah, about 25 maybe, (sighs) something like that. Neither one of us is that old, I'm just saying. Well, my age goes backwards. Mine too. Good, good. I'm glad to know I'm not the only person. Yeah. So we'll get into all of that stuff in a minute, but I want to know what Matthew Knowles is doing today. Well, today I am uh, living my passion, uh, and that's to educate and to motivate in two areas, music, business, and entrepreneurship. So I've uh, had the opportunity and the privilege to go around the world uh, in the last six months, year, uh, to give lectures. I was at Harvard a couple of weeks ago. I've been at Cornell, uh, University of Cape Town in South Africa, Prairie View A&M, Alabama A&M, York, Pennsylvania, uh, and just really just having fun writing books on my third book now, Racism from the Eyes of a Child, the DNA of Achievers, the Emancipation of Slaves Through Music, and now we're working on Destiny's Child, an untold story as a book, and working with a young man from Houston, Jacarius Johnson. I'm sure you might know him. Yes, I do. Uh, And we've just partnered, and we'll make an announcement. I guess we're making that today. That, uh, He's making news. I love <laughs> we're it. We're making news. Make some news that, for us. Uh, 20, in 2020, there'll be the Destiny's Child musical. Really? Really. And okay. so we're in the very early stages. Uh, just got the first draft of the script. Uh, just approved the press release that'll go out any day. And uh, we're making progress. So since you brought up Destiny's Child, so let's let's go back to those days. So the predecessor to Destiny's Child was Girls' Time, right? Well... Kind of, sort of? Well, it started with Girls' Time. Okay. And we'll be putting out that first album that's never been released. Uh, and then Girls' Time became The Dolls with Daryl Simmons, who is uh, Babyface and L.A. Reid's partner, still is today writing partner uh, in Atlanta. And then the girls were signed to Electro Records. They got dropped. Uh, and that happens in our business. Failure uh, and mistakes is opportunity to grow, not a reason to quit. 
uh, and then the dolls became something fresh, and then something fresh became cliche, and then cliche became destiny, which Tina, my former wife, named, and, and then uh, we got a cease and desist letter. There's a girl uh, group in Mississippi, a gospel girl group named Destiny, and uh, we found out we had to change the name, and I came up with uh, let's add something before after Destiny, so and I Destiny's this, Child. Destiny Shaw. Okay. So, and then I guess from there, kind of the, the rest is history. I mean, we all know about, you know, the great success of the group. And, and then Beyonce went out on her own. And since then, she has been just doing some incredible work. No, that, that's inaccurate. Uh, I get an opportunity to Uh-oh. clear up some things. Okay. okay, clear up. So it was a strategy uh, that we came up with uh, that doing Destiny's Child after the second album, each one of the ladies went solo. Michelle had a number one gospel late uh, album because that was her passion. Uh, Kelly was pop in in Europe, sold over four million albums on her first album. And then Beyonce did her first album, Dangerously in Love. uh, what maybe it was B Day? It's been s- such a long time. Then we did <laughs> Destiny's Child uh, again, and then each one of the ladies did their solo album a second time, and then we did the final Destiny's Child album. Okay. So that was a strategy that I came up with to help build the audience and also prepare each one of the ladies for their solo career. It wasn't just, you know, it's never for me have been just about Beyonce. So the strategy was to to make sure that each one of them had the foundation that they needed to go off and do their own thing. And also to build an audience of Destiny's Child. Mm-hmm. Each time mm-hmm. they had their own solo album, it helped build the audience. Uh, because it's a very simple business. Audience equals sales. Right, right. So, you know, there was a, a lot of controversy back then when all that was happening. So it's interesting to hear you talk about the strategy because there were so many reports in the media about, um, you know, them not getting along and there was this and there was that. And and then, you know, we see them on stage like during um, Homecoming. Mm-hmm. Um, they were on stage together. They were on stage during the Super Bowl, I believe. Didn't they come back for the Super Bowl as well? Yes, they Beyonce? did. Okay. So obviously they're, you know, still close. They're still they're still friends. They're still working together. Well, and I always tell everyone, most girl groups and guy groups break up. Destiny's Child never broke up. They retired. That's different. That's a difference. Yeah. That's strategic. Mm-hmm. We only do strategy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, we were talking just before we started about Homecoming and um, the, the release of it. So I've not had a chance to watch it yet, but of course I've watched the, the performance at Coachella from 2018. Um, what are your thoughts about Homecoming? And, and, and you said, call me when you've, when you've, yeah, when you've watched it I so was, we can talk I, about I, it. I, it was a very, very proud, pride, and proud moment for me as a father mm. uh, to see both of my daughters, you know, and Beyonce did an incredible job. Uh, but that moment when they both were together has always yes. been a dream of mine. It's um, and so that brought tears. Uh, Beyonce has just grown tremendously. Uh, I, and I think when we look at we're in 2019 and the fact that there's never been a black female perform at Coachella is just mind boggling to me yeah. uh, that how far we still have to go mm-hmm. in certain areas. 
And to see Destiny's Child, to see the confidence of, of uh, Kelly, it's her confidence, I could tell, has really grown. Uh, Michelle is going through a transition in life, and I could see she felt comfortable, so it was really great to see that. But to also see the HBCUs, you know, most white people, and I think people finally are comfortable saying black and white. You know, we used to have to disguise those words. But most white people didn't even know what HBCU stood for. Uh, they didn't know the experience, the cultural experience that we have as black folks at our black school's homecoming. It's not even about the football game. It's about the band and halftime. And, and so to share that and to have all of those great bands uh, be a part of it. And there were certain parts where, like, like Beyonce said, express yourself, whoever you are. Right. This is your op- opportunity to express yourself and to see her just take command and control of her business side as well as her creative side uh, just makes me extremely proud. I hope she, uh, for a number of reasons, go on tour with that. It would certainly save millions of dollars to do it now and not to start it back up because she has all the infrastructure in place. Right, right. Do you, do you know if she has any, any plans to do that? I don't know, but I'm, I'm sure she'll hear me talk about yeah. this. Well, she's such a savvy businesswoman, and um, and clearly you, you were obviously a huge force in not only building the artistic side of not only Beyonce, but all of the artists that you've worked with through the years. But what about the business side? Um, how, how much of that was prevalent um, as when they were still under your wing? Well, you have to remember that girls' time, Beyonce was 9 or 10. Mm-hmm. So we're st- we, I have to remind people that uh, Beyonce and Destiny Shaw, Kelly, Michelle – their input in the business side started probably around when they were 21 and it began. But when we're spending millions of dollars, a 16-year-old, a 17-year-old is not going to have any input, zero, on the business side. Right. I mean, that's just a fact right. in the music industry, in any industry, mm-hmm. where you're spending millions of dollars. So she's watched that business side and really her insulin and, and learn. Uh, from the mistakes as well as the successes mm-hmm. uh, because uh, there are mistakes. And like I said earlier, earlier, those are opportunities to grow. But I'm proud to see how Beyonce has grown into that businesswoman today where she still has more to learn in certain areas, but she will in time. And she'll mm-hmm. make, stakes, make mistakes and she'll learn more. Mm-hmm. As she began began to grow into her own and decided to go out on her own and part ways with your company, mm-hmm. how did you deal with that? And how 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 was that for you on a on a personal level as well as a business level? How did you deal with well that? in the music industry and in sports in sports and music? There's not a it's not a are you going to part ways. It's going to happen. It's, when, when are you going to part ways? Yeah, and, and, how, and how are you going to part ways? Are you going to part ways where you both say enough is enough? Uh, are you going to part ways when there's drama? 
Uh, and, and so that didn't bother me because folks in the music industry realize the what I've contributed. See, I have a, a folks in the music and they have a different perspective than the folks watching this because the folks watching this, they don't understand the music industry. They don't understand the accomplishments that we've done and how hard it is to be the very best and to start with zero and build it to the greatest ever. That requires tremendous focus, tremendous strategy, tremendous talent, tremendous work ethics, tremendous risk-taking. It requires all of that. Mm -hmm. So... um no, I'm well-skilled in deflecting on that question. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I know. I noticed that. <laughs> this so is going to be fun because well, you never really had this with me. No, but, we, you know, I mean, like... This is going to be a Wendy Williams moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't say that. No, I'm just saying, I you know, say she that. tried to go there, you know. No, but, I mean, you know, I mean, just so, just so the audience knows, I mean, like I said, we've known each other for a long time, but I've never had this kind of a conversation no, with you before. No, you haven't, ever. And we, before we sat down, you didn't say, by the way, don't ask me this, and I didn't ask you if there were any questions that were off limits, so I'm assuming there aren't. Well, guess what? <laughs> what? I, I teach this. It's one real simple thing, Linda. I don't have to answer the question. This is true. And I always tell my artists, you don't have to answer it just because they ask you. Now, in time, you'll learn how to deflect it more professionally. Right. Um, but you don't have to answer it. Okay. Well, you did, actually, you did answer it because you said it didn't bother you. Okay. Good. Okay. <laughs> See, he's not going there. <laughs> okay. I can tell this is going to be a great interview. This is I, going I look to be a forward great to this, interview. by the way, Linda. Well, really? You've always been so kind and, um, and so professional. Well, and, thank you. And I, I've I, always I admired you. you for that. Thank you, and I appreciate you uh, taking the time to do this because it certainly is not an interview that you have to do. As you said, you've got so much going on in, in your life right now with all the speaking that you're doing. Um, you mentioned the book that, um, that you um, wrote about racism, mm -hmm. um, and one of the, the themes of this podcast is really about um, what it's like to be considered the other. Okay, and my contention is that we're all someone else's other at some point in life. And I think that is contributing greatly to the divide that we have in our country right now. We are othering each other to degrees that I don't remember ever seeing in my lifetime to the degree that it is right now. Well, I have. I've seen even more. Okay. Uh, so tell me what you have seen and what your thoughts are about where we are as a nation right now from your perspective. Yeah, well... You know, racism from the eyes of a child really is my story. I have a very unusual um, upbringing. I grew up in a little small town, Gaston, Alabama. I doubt if you've even heard of it ever. Um, fourth largest city it was, I'm not sure now. Had about 35,000 people. Uh, believe it or not, Linda, I never went to a black school. And I'm 67. I was born in 1952. So imagine... In 1958, um, I'm at a Catholic school. In 1965, I'm at a, a Litchfield Junior High School with a thousand white kids and six black kids. I graduated in 1970 at Gaston High, it's 3,000 white kids and maybe 25 of us. 
Um, and then I go on to the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga, and it's 18,000, and maybe there's 100 of us. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the environment and, and I, that I grew up in. Um, my parents were poor. My dad made $30 a week. My mom was a colored maid in Gaston, Alabama. What did your dad do? My dad was a truck driver, and I'll get back to him because he's very instrumental in my life. My mom was a colored maid. She made $3 a day, so $15 a week. So they made $45 a week on their day job. But my dad was entrepreneurial, and my dad convinced the owners to let him have that truck. He was a produce truck driver. It was a large truck. Uh, and he would go and tear down old houses in Alabama and Gaston, Gaston. And he would sell all of the copper, the metals, aluminum. And then if you had an old car back then, if you know, in the country where I lived, they would, when your car stopped, you just leave it in the front yard. And he would knock on the door and offer you $20 for it. And he'd sell every part in, on the, in the car. My mom, on the weekend, would make these beautiful quilts with her two uh, best girlfriends, and then they would sell them. So I learned entrepreneurship at an extremely early age, but I never knew I was poor. Although we lived on a dirt road in an outside bathroom until I was about 16 years old. And so I always tell my listeners, if I can come from that environment and accomplish with gratitude, uh, what we've accomplished, then I believe anyone can. Right. No, I I, I agree with you. Um, So tell me, during that upbringing, the point that you were going to make about you have seen it worse than it is now in terms of the divide. So talk to me about Well, when you're growing up in Gaston, Alabama, and George Wallace is the governor, uh, it's very clear of, see, you've never seen a Ku Klux Klan and 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 robe or, or a, a, not in, no not in person not in person not in or person. I, I have not. so this is how my books start out and I'll give you a very short version. Uh, my grandparents lived in Marion, Alabama, real small. My mother went to high school with Coretta King, so that'll help you understand okay. why she took the torch in Gaston, Alabama, on desegregation and me being the first. Okay. Uh, and, and so. It was a, a, a night in the summers, me and my brother, I had an older brother uh, who was nine years older than me. Uh, my mom would take me and my brother to our grandparents' house. And this night, she would get into an argument with her. My grandmother's name was Hester. I called them oil and water in the book. They just could not get along. My mom decided that, that she's going to take me and my brother. We're going to walk about a mile up the road to her nearest relative. And so you have to take a dirt road, get on the main highway. We're walking on the highway, and we could see lights in the distance and hear the horns in the distance. But then I noticed my mom. I'm five years old now. And I could notice my mom changed. And then all of a sudden she told me and my brother, we have to get in the woods and get in the woods right now. And you could hear the horns get louder and the lights got brighter. And then my mom got on top of me and told my brother, if anything happens, Jesse, take Junior's, which I'm a junior, take Junior, you guys go up under that barbed wire fence, and y'all just run into the, where the cows are, the pasture, as fast as you can. And then my mom started 
praying. I started crying because I didn't know. I'm five years old. And when you're that young, you always ask the question, why? And so she says, be quiet. And then finally, the, the cars passed, and it was a KKK rally. And so my mother w- was ready to ris- risk her life for us. And, and that's how racism, and that's how my book started, mm-hmm. telling the first experience that I had with racism. I, I can't even imagine what, what that must have felt like for you as a, as a young boy. Um, so I, what flashed in my mind as you were telling this story is the rally that was in um, North Carolina a couple years ago where there were a lot of um, white supremacists, neo-Nazis, yes, in Charlottesville, tiki torches, etc. When you saw that, what did you think? Well, I've seen that before. But but seeing it at, at this moment in history... What did that mean to you? It, it didn't surprise me. Racism is alive and well in America. We need to wake up yeah, and uh, understand that racism is alive and well. And the belief system of many, and of some, uh, against blacks, against Jewish community, against the brown, has Latino community, uh, you know, that's a belief system that we have got to have the social courage. And I call it social courage to speak up, speak out, and speak against quicker, faster, sooner against racism, sexism, xenophobia, homophobia, mm-hmm. and all the other phobias. All, all of it. It's Because it's all the othering of, Ex- of, exactly. of the human race, really. And unfortunately, we have a leadership today that is just putting uh, gasoline on the fire. And it's a run- runaway train. Well, I, I agree with you. There are those who would disagree with both of us that it has nothing to do with, with the current administration in the White House. Um, and people are certainly entitled to their opinions. But part of what I'm trying to get at here with this podcast and having these kinds of conversations is trying to foster some way for those who don't believe what you just said to, I'll bet that there are people out there watching and listening right now who um, have bought your music, have bought Beyonce's music, have gone to her concerts, have gone to Solange's concerts, um, are fans, if you will, but might also be considered white supremacists, might also believe that the white race is superior to anything that is less, that is not white. Um, How do you, how do you, there's such a dichotomy. I was thinking the exact word, dichotomy. There's such a dichotomy. So how do we bridge this? How do we get back to Humanity and seeing each other for being just human beings. Well, I think we do exactly what you're doing right now, uh, and we we put it out there in the open. And it's, it's okay. We are different culturally. White people and black people and brown people and Jewish people culturally are different. 
And, and that's, that's okay. okay. Right? And that's okay. That's okay. And that's okay. But yeah. the whole thing about privilege, that bothers me. Because I live in a high-rise here in Houston, Texas, and we have a policy, no dogs on the elevator. But there's some folks feel they're privileged, that those rules don't apply to them. And that's a belief system that goes way back. See, we forget it was just years ago. Your great, great, great grandfather was a slave. West Africa. Yeah. And we forget those kids sat at dinner and heard the slave master highest. He talked. And once the slaves were free, still those kids in River Oaks heard their great, their great grandfather talk and say words, the N word and, mm-hmm. and belief system. This is not years removed. Which is closer than we think. And that whole belief system is still within some of us. And it's, you know, it's interesting that you you bring it down to that um, core, which is, you know, where it all started with slavery. And there, I've been reading a lot lately. There's a lot of um, conversation about reparations. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, would love to know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I, uh, I, uh, and I, I just had a mental blank, but it's the governor who's running for president from Indiana. Buttigieg. Yeah. Buttigieg. He, he's a really sharp guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have my eyes on him. Uh, I, I'm not sure he'll be able to be nominated, but I think he could be great in the cabinet. Uh, whoever the, uh, mm-hmm. the, if a Democrat wins and, and hopefully will go to vote. Uh, but you, so, but you agree that agree. there should be reparations. Well, let me tell you and why. What would, what would that look like? Well, first, let me tell you why. You know, we always say that America was built on what? Mm-hmm. What do we always say? On on, on the backs of oh, immigrants. Yeah. No, America was built on the back of slaves, yeah. not immigrants. Yeah. That came later. Let's be clear, yeah. because yeah. cotton was a valuable commodity. And that's what this was all about. It's always about money. Yeah. Follow the money. And, and, yeah. and, you know, we don't really want to go to the core of what, what this issue is. And go to the core, even with black folks, colorism. Why is there colorism? Why do we look at in India and, and all around the world, the darker shade is treated differently yeah. uh, than the lighter shade? That all came from slavery. That came from the master raping our black female slaves. Let's be clear, all the damages that have been done from this, that people right. ignore and turn their heads on. Well, and, and also because of what you just said, I mean, and I just recently did my, um, my ancestry, and there's a, you know, a fairly, not a large percentage of, of my blood that is white, but there is white in my blood. Mine's too, from England, Knowles. Okay, well, then mine is, is Irish. Uh, my my great-great-aunt was Annie McKay, young, and she looked like a white woman. She looked like a white woman. So, you know, this whole thing about, you know, my race is more superior or better than yours, the only race that we really all are is the human race. Right. And we all have elements of each other's blood in us because of our history. And um, so getting back to my question about reparations, 
if it were ever to happen, what do you think that would look like? How would how would um, how would would one go about creating something that that equates to reparations for slavery? I have a sense it'll never happen, Linda. Really? But then I had a sense I never would have thought we had a black president in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. You know, I would have never thought that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just think it would be extremely difficult. And all the steps from a legal and mm-hmm. political standpoint would be just a real huge hurdle to overcome. Even if it doesn't happen, and I, I agree with you, I don't, I don't yeah. think it will happen. Because we still have this Senate. Yeah. And I don't know if you looked at the photo or what the Senate looked oh, like. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. These. Well, and I think not just, not just because of the legislative makeup um, currently of the, uh, of the Congress, but I, I just don't think that there would be support, widespread support from the general public. Um, yeah. But having said that, do you believe there's value in even having the conversation? Yeah, there's certainly value yeah. in having a conversation. Yeah. If nothing else, apology. I mean, I think a lot of black people just like to hear apology. Mm. That, you know, we did this, we were wrong, and we want to write it in some way. And I don't know what that some way is, mm-hmm. but in some way. When I was thinking again about your story about hiding in the woods from the clan with your mom and your and your big brother. Um, clearly, that was a very stark, um, difficult moment in your life where you were most definitely the other. And had you not hidden, you might not be here. Well, that's been so, many other times. I've, I've been... Most of you that's that's listening right now have no idea what an electric prodder is. Uh, that's what the Alabama State Troopers, it's this pole full of batteries and three-pronged at the end, and they would charge us, you know, when we would demonstrate. That's how they would end the demonstration, is by charging again, getting electric prodded. Mm-hmm. Well, I've been electric prodded. I know what that feels like. I know what that feels like to be in front of the courthouse at midnight, digging a hole in the ground, the ladies circling a lady so that you could use the bathroom. I know what that feels like. I know what it feels like when kids were put in jail. See, most people don't understand in the civil rights movement, kids played a major role from, gosh, I started demonstrating when I was 11 11 years old, I think it was. Uh, We look at the Alabama uh, bombings and mm-hmm. in Mississippi, um, and, and it. I I talk about this in my my book, racism from the eyes of the child. I have been in therapy. I'm not now, but for ten years I went to to therapy because of the racial trauma. So I was just going to ask you, how did those experiences shape the man that you have become today? How did you use those horrific experiences? to come out of it stronger on the other side and be able to to raise a family, and in particular, your two daughters who are both not only exceptional musicians, but exceptional human beings. Yeah, they are. I'm very proud of that. And so how, how did you use that to get here? Well, my therapist used to always say, well, because of that racial trauma, is why, I, why I've been so successful, being the number one sales rep in the world at Xerox Medical System, 
being the first black to sell MRI and CT scanners in America, being one of the first blacks to be a neurosurgical specialist with Johnson & Johnson. Uh, that's the positive side and the success of, of being success-driven. Mm -hmm. The negative side is that I can go awry. It's either I'm um, 100% or I'm a minus 100%. And, and, and that's what I had to work on, is that when I have those things that become, uh, what's the uh, word, they become the things that uh, triggers, social triggers that happen that really triggered me. I mean, things like putting, going in first class and flight attendant saying, hey, I'm sorry, this is reserved for the first class. Uh, because, you know, I... Because you couldn't possibly be, be, in, be first in class. first class, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, those type of triggers. Mm -hmm. and, and so when that happens today, what do you, how do you respond to that? You know, I have to pause for a second. I have to pause for a second. Uh, and I've learned that you can't make me feel a certain way. Only I can make myself feel that. And those are the things that were instilled in the childhood. Yeah. And, and so the things I've learned in therapy allows me to pause and, and, and then, not react and like then, I used and to then react. Say, and then say what? After you've paused, what do you say to the flight well, it's, it, it challenges. I mean, it changes. You know, it's <laughs> Depending a, on the circumstances. The circumstances. Yeah. I can go there now. Mm -hmm. I can go there. Yeah. But I tell you what, one of the things that... Being in a white environment growing up in Alabama uh, back in the 60s and 70s, 70s has given me the understanding, the social uh, tools that I need, that a lot of blacks today, and especially our young blacks, they're, they're not getting the social tools to interface and interact with different cultures and races. It gave me the social tools so I can communicate effectively with a white person, uh, you know, because I grew up with white people, so I can I can interact socially with them. Do you, which so, has given me an edge professionally? That's interesting that that you say that because I would think that at this time in history, that we're more integrated than segregated, but. Based on what you just said, it sounds like you feel the reverse is true. Only people that integrated was black people. Think about Houston, Third Ward. It used to be booming. Doctor's offices, attorney offices, uh, groceries, black grocery stores, black cleaners, black hair salon, black nail salons. Can you believe that? Mm. We are the ones doing integration. Uh, it's called the bid rent theory, where all of the infrastructure in the 70s were in, in the suburbs. So as we integrated, we did this mad flight to the suburbs. A lot of us who had financial stability and, and income and some wealth. Uh, and as we moved out of our neighborhoods, we moved out of our neighborhoods. They didn't move out of their neighborhoods. They are now have gentrified and moved into our neighborhoods. So we're the ones who integrated. Yeah, you're, and you're again, right. I'm a, I, 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 you know, people are surprised because they don't know my intellectual capabilities. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what do they think? So that's actually, I'm glad you said that because that was one of the questions that, that I have for you, which is, 
you know, what are the what are the misconceptions that that you think people have about you that are just not true? Well, for one thing, they to think that Beyonce was a, a meal ticket for us is absolutely one hundred percent inadequate and inaccurate. Uh, Beyonce was born in nineteen eighty one. I was the number one sales rep at Xerox uh, worldwide in the medical division in 1984, 1985, and 1987. Uh, I made in 1978 is when I started with Xerox. In 1980, I made six figures. So if you look at six figures in 1980, it would be seven figures today. Uh, Tina had the number one hair salon in Houston. And we partnered, and we made our first million dollars in 1987. Million dollars at the hair salon. You've been there before. Yes. So you, you, you can know <laughs> I'm, I'm, what I'm saying is yes. real. Yes, So that's the first thing that people don't understand is that Solange and Beyonce and Kelly, who lived with us since she was 10, um, we were in an upper middle class uh, mm-hmm. environment and neighborhood. Uh, so that's the first thing. The other thing is... Everything is about Beyonce in my life, and, and that I always, with Destiny's Child, gave her more attention than the others. It was just the opposite. I was tougher on Beyonce always than the rest of the girls, because I realized I had a fiduciary duty to be fair. So you were harder on her than the other two because she was your well, daughter. Well, you got to remember or there was changes. Two, it was, there was yeah, changes I understand. in the okay, beginning. The other girls in the group, whatever it was at the time. But the point being that you were harder on her because you didn't want it to appear as though you were giving her an easier Exactly. Path. Not only that, though, but I also understood that she could take it more so than the others. And in a team environment you're only as strong as the weakest link. So I had to focus focus more positive attention to the rest of the girls. What do you think were the most important things that, that you taught um, Beyonce and Solange especially, because they are your daughters, as well as the others, but especially Beyonce and Solange at this point? Um, what's it that you taught them that gave them the impetus and the drive to be who they are now, to stand in, in their own truths, mm-hmm. and to be as, as strong and independent and successful as they are. Well, you know, you it's, and it's, Tina, it's, it's, I was just you about, were, you, you, were, you took you the words Tina. out of my mouth. Right. I was just about Tina to say it. It was, it was two parents. First right. of all, they were in a two-parent two home. Two-parent household. Uh, yeah. And that always gives you a different result. Sure. Um, you know, it was, I guess, gosh, Tina and I got our divorce, I guess Beyonce was in her 30s. So that's a different so they thing. They were grown and out of the yeah, house. Yeah, yeah. As they mm-hmm. would say to me, we were grown ass women. Uh, <laughs> but one of the things that we, a couple of things, is, is Tina and I always were very open about our successes and our failures. We didn't try to hide and disguise that from the kids. Uh, most people don't realize Tina ran a hair salon, and the most profitable days of a hair salon 
It's Friday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. So if Tina's not there, who had to be with the, the girls on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday? Who had to do their homework with them? Who had to take them to the mall, to the skating rink, to get ice cream? So you were there. I you was were, there. You were a present dad. I was a present dad. Yeah. Very, very proud of that. Yeah. Very proud of that. And, you know, there was a um, time Beyonce competed when she was really young, like eight years old, uh, the Sammy Davis Junior Awards. You remember that? I don't. Well, yeah, it was, I, it was. I mean, I've read about it, but I. Yeah, it was here I in Houston. See, yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't here and, in Houston. And uh, then, so. she did the song "Imagine" by John Lennon, mm. and I wanted her to understand what she was singing. So what I did is I took Beyonce. We went to the row houses here in Houston, and we picked the house. And Big Mama was on the front porch, and a bunch of kids mm. running around. And we brought. We got some water uh, and. We asked, could we come and say hello? And we sat there and talked to them. And I wanted Beyonce to understand that. I wanted her to understand and compare where she lived and the life she lived versus the kids that didn't have that opportunity. Uh, then we start, went down Main Street, and there was this white guy. He had a basket. He was homeless. And I have a photo, and I haven't sh- shown it yet, but I will, where Beyonce is pushing this man's basket, homeless man's basket. And then she gives him a kiss and hugs them. Then we went into the Hispanic neighborhood. And they, what is the thing when they, they, they're hitting the doll? And the, oh, the, uh, yeah, the piñata. The, the yeah, piñata. that. that. And, and we just walked up and said, hey, you know, hi. And, <laughs> and she started playing with the kids and stuff. Uh that's what I'm proud of, is that we taught them diversity, we th- taught them different cultures, but more importantly, we taught them to be kind and respectful, the same to the president as you would to the homeless man or woman. That's what we taught them, is that you're always polite, caring, and professional. And now you're a proud grandfather. Yeah. What are your your hopes and your fears for your grandchildren when you look at the future of this country? Yeah, well, that's a good question. Um, I mean, it's all about this election that's coming up in 2020. We, if we don't win this election in 2020, I, I think it'll make a significant impact on my grandkids and you and I and everyone else. How so? Uh, I, I just think that uh, it's a runaway train and it will only get worse. I think at some point there'll be a civil war in America. I actually believe that. You're not the first person to say that. To I actually me. believe that. Mm-hmm. I, I think people are gearing up for it. You know, they've had the largest in ammunition sales and gun sales. I, I, I just think we have better pay attention. Um, so that's my biggest fear. You know, uh, Alabama in this last Senate race, uh, when the, uh, um, the Moore, Moore was running Roy for Moore. Senate, mm-hmm. Roy Moore, who actually went to my same high school that I did, really? but five years ahead of me, Gaston High. Uh, and, and in that race, 98% of every black 
female registered to vote in Alabama voted. And the, the difference in winning the race was only 1,500-some votes. It wasn't a, a landslide. But every vote does count. Every vote does count. And we have to go, get out and vote. So that's the fear, that if we don't overcome this 2020 election, it will impact all of us in a, in a great way. The plus side, though, is I think that, and I'm very grateful to say this, um, that Beyonce and Jay financially uh, have an opportunity that others don't have. And I'm proud to see how they help others because they really give. Because we also taught our kids to give until it hurts. Uh, and everybody's definition of giving to it hurts is different. For somebody could be $10 to somebody could be 10000 uh, Who knows? That's a personal thing. And I'm very, very proud of that. Very proud of that. I can see already that uh, Blue Ivy has the bug. Uh, I do want her to the come... Per- the performing bug. The performing bug. Yeah. But, I, but I do want her to spend 30 days with me. I... I, uh, I she just needs some grandfather... <laughs> Like my grandfather would and, and, and give what me. Will, and what will Blue Ivy get during these 30 days with you? All of that attention you're not going to get here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I run this house, not you. <laughs> okay. Uh, she need a little of that, I can see. <laughs> but, you know, to me, you know, I'm so proud of Jules. Mm. Jules is 13. Um, he wears a size 12 shoe. Uh, he's... Almost six feet tall. Oh my goodness! Uh, my grandfather was six six. My my brother was six seven. My mother was six foot. Uh, and this kid can dribble and shoot like Curry on the Warriors. Wow! He is playing AAU basketball and he can ball. So we need to be be watching out for him. We should. He can really ball. <laughs> It sounds to me like you can, too. You were showing me the uh, Instagram post of you and Kobe from back in the day. Yeah, back in the day. <laughs> you know, that's how my parents was too poor for me to go to college. The way I went to college is because I had scholarship, a basketball scholarship. Mm-hmm. And the way that I went to Fisk, my first black school, my, my first month in a black school was not comfortable. I had never been around this many black you know, both of my kids parents before. Graduated from Fisk. Yeah. yeah. Oh, did they? Yeah. What, what year? Oh, don't ask I them was that. 74. No, no. They were much, they were long before you. Okay. <laughs> they were long before you. But uh, they were in the, I'm going to say in the, in the 40s, maybe in the early okay. 40s. Yeah. I was the last class that had the brown paper bag test. Okay, you have to tell our audience what that is. At Fisk, first of all, General George Fisk, uh, who was uh, uh, one of the generals in, during the war, um, a lot of the generals didn't want their kids to go to black agricultural schools like Tuskegee A&M, Tennessee State A&M, Agricultural mm-hmm. and Mechanical. So there were schools like Howard and Fisk where their kids where they had mm-hmm. made it with a slave. Their kids who look very white, sometimes you couldn't even tell if they were black. That's where they would go to school. Fisk was really noted for that. Um, and they would literally, your application, you would have to have a photo, and they would put a brown paper bag next to the photo. 
The exceptions were athletes. I would have never made it, but because I was an athlete, I, I did. Uh, those parents who gave substantial money, like Hank Aaron's daughter was in my class, but he gave millions to the university. Uh, it was that type of colorism that existed mm-hmm. back then. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you know, it's just so, when you hear it, in, in such stark terms like that, it seems so difficult to believe. And so you have this colorism within the African-American race and then beyond that from race to race to race. And it's just, uh, you know, okay, when, when is it, it going to stop? Maybe, maybe I'm just, you know, too Pollyanna-ish. I, I don't know what it is, <laughs> but I just, it's just so difficult to... Um, to see how we label each other and we other each other. And yeah. at the end of the day, we all want the same thing. Yeah, and know? at the end of the day, when you get stopped at 10 o'clock at night mm. and your driver's license says black, it really does matter what shade of black you are. This is true. And this especially true. if you're a young black male, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. You get treated the same. So, Matthew, I could sit here and talk to you all day, but I, I want to wrap this up by asking you um, what's next for you um, in terms of your career? And I know you're doing a lot of speaking. And um, what is it that really that you're passionate about now, and what's the next step? It's the same thing what I, that I started out with, the educate and motivate, mm-hmm. uh, and entrepreneurship and music business, because a lot of failure in the music industry, and, and, and I was, you talked about LinkedIn. I, I really like LinkedIn. Um, and I was just, over the weekend, I was spent some time on it. And mm-hmm. God, every 10 things I read said, huh, I'm, I'm an incredible singer. I'm going to be the best ever. Uh, and my response always is that this is a 60-40 business. It's 40% talent, 60% business. And there's a lot of people that have talent, but they don't have the right team around them, and they don't have great songs. And so I enjoy for those people. Uh, tomorrow I have uh, Wednesday, actually, uh, and I was just working out in the gym, and this young man came up, and I heard, overheard him, and he's a, a, a CPA, and he has a client uh, that spent a million dollars with his record label. And I'm like... That's way, way too much. And so, you know, just to operate, and a lot of athletes want to get into the music industry, and they just spend, they have a target on their back, and they don't realize it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then entrepreneurship, you know, um, to help folks. A lot of business businesses and black businesses go out of business not because they're not passionate. It's because they're not knowledgeable. Mm-hmm. They don't understand the who, the what, the why. Who's the customer? What is the product? Why should they buy it? Uh, and, and I enjoy that. I enjoy telling my story and being real and being vulnerable and telling my story. Well, in, in telling your story, I'm sure that there are people who are watching and listening to this um, who will hear things that they've never heard before from you. And, um, and they might look at you differently as a, as a result of that. Um, you know, I always say that you know there there are people watching who may have uh, an opinion about me as an African American woman, or you as an African American man, or me as a Christian, and 
or me, you know, whatever. And people have their own preconceived ideas and notions. But the yeah. point is, by sharing your story and by me being who I am and sharing myself, the, the and I hope, thank you. The hope and the goal is that somebody will say, "Hey, you know, we're just people, just like just like you." And I like to share. Just I like to give these bits of. Uh, Please, I was just going to say, what do, you, what do you want to leave with our audience I want, today? I want I, the audience to know two things. One is the destruction of ego, because a lot of failure in our lives is based on ego. Mm. And ego is the anesthesia that deadens the pain of stupidity. Let's say that again. Ego is the anesthesia that deadens the pain of stupidity. Get that? Yeah. And, and I want folks to know that. And the second thing is I always uh, leave with, with uh, well, before I tell this last thing, I do want to ask people to go to MatthewKnowles.com. Okay. Uh, one T. One T, yes. Uh, because you can buy books there and mm-hmm. you can book me to speak as a public and we'll, speaker. And we'll link, of course, to Yeah, you. thank you. Mm-hmm. But I always tell this story. I, as you know, I travel a lot. So I'm in L.A. and I'm going down an escalator and there's a nun from Mexico. And she has this jar and she asked to give to the missionary. Had you no know, words on the spell, but that wasn't important. Uh, and I give. I, I, I don't question the motive. I'm grateful that I have the opportunity to give. It's not a day hardly passed in Houston that I don't give to somebody that I don't know, don't want anything in return. Uh, and, and so the nun gave me a card, and it took me, I have this habit of putting cards in my pocket and then putting them in my next pocket. And so I finally read the back of the card, and that's what I want to leave you and your audience with. Uh, the back of the card said, pray not for a life free from trouble. Pray for triumph over trouble. For what you and I called adversity, God calls opportunity. There's, there's opportunity in adversity. There's opportunity when we fail and make mistakes, because I'm certainly not perfect. Uh, but I always say mistakes and failure is an opportunity to grow, not a reason to quit. And we often, we quit way too soon. Well, I, I love those words that you're leaving us with, and I couldn't agree with you more. Um, we're not going to quit. We're not going to quit. We can't. We can't. We can't. We we're can't not going to quit. quit. We're going we're gonna to keep, keep working toward um, positivity, toward love and empathy, and making the world a better place for all human beings, not just for some. Thank you. And thank you for giving me this opportunity to share with your audience maybe some things they didn't know. And hopefully you invite me back. I'd like to come back one day. Well, I would love to have you back anytime. Anytime you want to come make some news, just call me. I will. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much, Matthew. And thank you for watching and listening and giving him the chance to speak and for having an open mind as you listen. Thanks so much. We'll see you next time. Thanks so much for giving our guest permission to speak and for having the courage to listen with an open mind. If the mission of Our Voices Matter resonates with you, please like, subscribe, download, and share, and then join the conversation because it really is going to take all of us to make a difference.